everyone, welcome to this Intralingo Spotlight. I'm Lisa Carter, Founder and Creative Director. Today I am really pleased to be speaking with um, Silvia Moreno-Garcia, who is a Mexican-Canadian author uh, about her book Untamed Shore. So welcome, Silvia. Oh, hi. Thank you very much. Glad to have you here. So we're going to talk, of course, like about, uh, as I said, Untamed Shore for sure, but um, it would be wonderful if you would like to introduce uh, listeners to a little bit about yourself. As I said, you are Mexican-Canadian. You describe yourself as Mexican by birth and Canadian by inclination. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Mexico and I moved as a grown woman, I immigrated to Canada, and I've been living here for quite a while, uh, so that's where the inclination comes from. Great. Um, I've written about, um, I think, four novels now that were speculative fiction, you know, fantasy and, um, you know, all, all shades of that. And so Untamed Shore is actually my first crime novel, um, so my first non-speculative, fantastic kind of book. And it's out this February from Paulus Books, uh, from their Agora line. And yeah, I'm very pleased with it. It's set in Baja California, which is where I'm from originally. So okay. it was nice to go back in, in that sense. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, as you said, you have four published books already. Um, Untamed Shore comes out in February. And you have another book as well, Mexican um, Gothic, that's coming out uh, shortly after. Is that right? That's correct. That's coming out in June in the summer. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm so curious, like there's this, as you say, there's this speculative fantasy sort of um, genre that you've been working in, and now you've moved into crime. What was the reason or what, what inspired you to, to head in a bit of a different direction? Um, I've always liked crime novels, and there's a long um, history of uh, crime novels of, of noir, so the novela negra in um, in all of Latin America, also in Spain. Uh, so we've been um, working this genre for quite a while. So I read a lot of um, famous crime novelists from, from you know, Mexico and Latin America, Paco Ignacio Taibo, and other people. And I've always really loved the fact that I think crime and noirs allow you to have characters who are a lot more morally gray, uh, maybe not so good. Whereas I feel like speculative fiction, traditionally, we always have had um, much more positive characters, uh, you know, you um, likable uh, characters. And so I think this is an arena where you can do people that are not so likable and deal with other things that you can't deal with um, necessarily in the same way in, in, within the body of uh, speculative fiction. Uh, so I, I quite like looking at those dark spaces, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was, uh, I would definitely want to get into the, the whole character, especially of your protagonist. Um, but um, yeah, there is a certain, there's definitely, as you say, this is noir, it's crime. Um, but the whole um, uh, body of your work in some ways could be seen as having a bit of a dark side, would you say? Um, I would say Certain Dark Things, which is a vampire novel and, and was supposed to be like a kind of like a neo-noir, is like that. But for example, um, 
The Beautiful Ones, which is kind of like a romance of manners, a novel of manners. And, uh, and Gods of Jade and Shadow both have a much lighter and pleasant tone. Uh, I mean, in Gods of Jade and Shadow, it is an adventure of quest, but it's supposed to be, to feel very much, um, not super light, but fun. You know, it's a fun mm -hmm. quest. And A Novel of Manners, again, it, it's supposed to have that feeling of uh, Jane Austen-esque kind of stuff, but it's not exactly gritty uh, Reservoir Dogs kind of situation. Um, right. So, no, I think I've, I've, I've written horror, I've written um, scary things, I've edited for the dark, I've done all kinds of different things all over the place, but I don't necessarily have uh, one single aesthetic in that sense. It, it goes from something that's quite light to this that is very different. I think somebody read um, The Beautiful Ones and now they read On Tame Shore, I think they would find them quite Quite different, yeah. And uh, so I'm curious just about this breadth of your writing. Is it that you set out a goal for yourself to try different styles and genres and, and approaches? Or is it that a story comes to you and then you just follow it? Um, I kind of don't like staying still. I don't like mm -hmm. necessarily doing the same thing all the time. There's uh, some writers that I think are very comfortable writing really long series, for example, and I, I can't see myself writing a long series, not even you know, three books, much less like six or seven. I can't see the same um, world all the time. Um, I get really bored also about uh, things. So after I'm done with a book, I really want to do kind of something else. Um, mm. So I don't necessarily gonna want to go back to the same genre or, or subgenre all the time. Uh, so I, th I think it just allowed me to, it just allows me to get that kind of restlessness out of me and yeah, just explore quite a, quite a bit. And there's just things that are kind of personal challenges, um, mm -hmm. like Gods of Jade and Shadow. It was more like, can I write a quest book when I'm not, you know, I haven't, I didn't think I would write a quest book, but it was, it was a question of can I do something that is more of a quest narrative as opposed to some of the stuff I had done before. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love the diversity of your books and, uh, and all of the covers are so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So going to now to talk a little bit about Untamed Shore, um, which as you described is a, is a crime novel um, set in Baja California and the protagonist, Viridiana, she's, um, uh, she's a young woman, so it's also a coming-of-age story. How do you introduce the plot and the premise of the book when you talk about Untamed Shore? Um, I call it a coming-of-age more or coming-of-age meets more. Um, set in Baja California, yeah, with, mm -hmm. with sharks on the side. Uh, but really it is, um, I mean, it's not a thriller, which I think is one of the Thing that happens is that there's so many subgenres of crime, it's, so it's not a thriller uh, like Jason Bourne. It's it's a novel of suspense. Everything is more quiet and slow and and like that, and it's just simmering. So, it, I think it falls in the category of more domestic noir, maybe, which focuses more on women, uh, but in this case, uh, quite a young one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Viridiana, she's a young woman and she's hired to work at the house of, uh, of this family of gringos who've come there. Um, and she's there to help the man start to write and sort of be their interpreter and, uh, and uh, a death occurs. And that's really the, the plot premise, sort of the crux of the story there. Um, one of the things that I really uh, appreciated, apart from the the actual suspense, because the book is very suspenseful, it builds beautifully, um, but is this notion of setting really kind of being a, an additional character. So it is in Baja California, and you've got, you know, the ocean on one side, the sea on one side, which, you know, has sharks in the water, and then you've got this desert on the other side and so um, your protagonist she's caught she's caught in amongst a lot of things and I think that setting portrays it uh, portrays it very well Um, that was clearly something you intended but I'd I'd love to hear your your take on that yeah Uh, the geography of Baja California is very interesting if you've ever been there it has a lot of microclimates um, and so it's, it's quite curious to go from one side to the other and see how things can change. Um, if you go from La Paz to Mexicali to the north, how, how things change. Uh, but it's also been traditionally a very isolated area. It, people, um, there wasn't a really big highway until the 70s, which, until a couple of years before this book opens. There wasn't a big highway kind of joining the north and the south. It was difficult to get there. Um, at the same time, it has this history of having been conquered and having all these missions and these pockets of things that you find along, along the roads. So it's, it's just a very, I think it's a very interesting landscape. And mm-hmm. I started writing this book really because um, I, was, I was doing a lot of things about the landscape and I ended up thinking that maybe this book was not, was just going to be landscape scenes and there was going to be no action because I, I wanted to write a lot about what it feels like to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the impulse really, one of the things was that, it, that it's a strange place to go to. Still, I think nowadays, even though it's different from, from the way it used to be, it, it was a bit of like, kind of like a final frontier um, mm-hmm. in that and, and the Yucatan Peninsula, which also was really quite isolated from the rest of Mexico, uh, kind of being separated from from everything else. And at the same time, but at the same time, it's also really close to the United States, um, geographically speaking. So it has that, mm-hmm. that kind of weirdness. And uh, and yeah, the, the shark fishing was, mm-hmm. was also um, something that I started thinking about and remembering. And the shark fishing is no longer the way it used to be, but back in the 70s, there was still some um, more shark fishing, the way that I'm mentioning it. Nowadays, it's really on the decline and uh, because of overfishing. And there's a lot more preservation initiatives and a lot more interest of the government in maintaining shark populations in the last couple of years. But back in the 70s, it was still the fishing that was happening uh, was more of what I'm describing in the book. So the tiburoneros were still, uh, I guess, more common than they are now. Now it's kind of like a dying profession. 
and also the sharks are almost, well, you know, they're disappearing really quickly. So we have a, an ecological problem there. But, um, but I think I just wanted to go back to that moment in time and, and that place in time. Mm, how interesting. Yeah. Um, I also love that the name of the town where, where um, this takes place is disengaño or, you know, disillusion, dis disappointment, disillusionment. I'm sure that was very purposeful as well. Yeah, it's a real town. Oh, is uh, it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, Desengaña is, you can find it on old maps, I think, of Baja. It's kind of in you know, the Bahia de Los Angeles area. It's not geographically where I put it. It's actually um, more inland. It was a mining town. It was abandoned at one point. There's a lot of abandoned places in Baja, places that were mining centers or that had some kind of industry that then ceased to be. And so this was, this has been abandoned for quite a while for quite a while, there's nothing there. Uh, but I just like the name. And so mm -hmm. I kept it and I moved it geographically. Uh, it, this is, I mean, it's next to the ocean, so it can't be the real Desengaño, but I stole the name from, from the town. And yeah, because it's a great name, I think disillusionment and, and that to be the name of a, of a mining town, which is what it was originally, <laughs> I thought was just very ironic. Um, and, uh, and I thought it was kind of like, yeah, the perfect name for a town, but it is, it is a real one. Um, I didn't make it up. We did call that. <laughs> and so, yeah, you can have, you can find this disillusionment in Baja California. It's right around <laughs> the middle of it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I, I certainly didn't recognize it as a name of, of anything I recognized, but um, that's great. As you say, um, so your protagonist is a young woman um, and it is this coming of age, which is a loss of innocence um, story. Um, this comes about for her in a lot of different ways, but of course, because of this murder that happens. Uh, and one of the things uh, that I loved hearing you say at the very beginning was that this gave you an opportunity, this, this genre gave you an opportunity to write more complex sort of character that wasn't purely black or purely white. Um, and she really changes over the course of the novel. She's quite innocent in the beginning. She completely loses her innocence. Um, and not to give, you know, obviously spoilers or give the story away, but I found her really very, very different at the end of the novel. Um, how, how, in what ways do you see her as being still the same um, by the end of the story? Um, I think that at the core, this is a character that is very determined to do something with her life. She's not quite sure what she's going to do or how she's going to do it, but, um, she, she definitely has that kind of drive and ambition and she's channeled it in a different way by the time that, that the book, um, uh, that the book ends. Mm -hmm. And also I think... This is a character who, like several of my other characters, there's, there's like an intense relationship with media, in this, in this case with movies um, yes. of a certain type, romantic movies of, of a certain Hollywood era, the 1950s, um, which is kind of like the stuff that, her, that she watched with her grandmother or watched on the TV set. And so it's this uh, kind of uh, notion of romance, this, this relationship with the silver screen. And, and she is um, 
I think she's kind of a passive consumer of that narrative, but by the end of the book, she realizes that you kind of like, there's reels of film, but you can kind of edit the film the way you want. And so that's kind of at the end what happens um, instead of just consuming the, the kind of Hollywood-esque fantasy, she comes to realize that you can do stuff with that. And so, I don't know mm. if that's a spoiler. But yeah, but she's very much um, in, in love with, with this idea of this kind of fantasy romance, fantasy land, fantasy people. Um, Elizabeth Taylor um, and Montgomery Clift are the two that come uh, that come up frequently. Uh, but then again, ironically, the, the, the movie that she mentions several times, A Place in the Sun, is a movie about a murder. Um, <laughs> it's actually, um, it is very romantic, but there's, it's also a crime movie, and I don't think she realizes kind of that when she's uh, kind of fascinated by it, that there's this other layer of it, um, and she's just looking at the, at the movie stars kissing, but at the center of A Place in the Sun, uh, a woman is murdered, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so true, as you say, she's very determined from the very beginning. And one of the things she's determined about is, is leaving and, and getting out of Desengaño. So I guess in some ways, um, her character really does develop along those lines of her pursuit of, of that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I did wonder, because as you say, the, the cinema plays a part in here it's inspirational for for her but uh um i'm sure that i felt like there was a lot more references and knowledge sort of under there because i'm i'm not a cinemaphile um are you is this an era of movies that you yourself like and and watch or is this something that you um developed for this book um no, I, I really like old movies. I, I actually have a criterion channel subscription. Uh, yes, cool. yes, I do. And um, and I know certain genres more than than others. I'm not a big classic Hollywood musical fan. I'm much more of a noir, of a classic noir viewer. Um, uh, I saw a lot of Mexican films when I was growing up on the TV with my grandmother, and so I consumed a lot of a lot of. Um, kind of a classic Mexico, it would be at the same time as the classic Hollywood era where all the big stars were there. So Pedro Infante and uh, Jorge Negrete and uh, Maria Felix and all these people were making all these movies. Um, and, and I really loved watching them. They were, they were very fun. But all this stuff until the 1960s when there's this switch from the studio system to kind of like the modern Hollywood uh, and before the development of the black blockbuster but in the 1950s and all this time period um it's all very constructed right so uh we know for example mm -hmm. that some actors were gay like Montgomery Cliff was gay but you couldn't say it so sometimes they even married them off um to pretend that they were uh straight uh people were giving kind of drugs so they would stay awake and uh and work um and uh, and there was sexual harassment and all this kind of stuff going on in the industry but, mm. but the perception the thing that was presented was always of uh this kind of flawless perfection right, right. Uh, in in movies everything was kind of perfect and, and peachy and, mm -hmm. and, and keen so it was this uh, it's it's fun to look at but at the same time it's this illusory 
illusory world, this world mm-hmm. that doesn't match um, the the reality of, of what's going on. Uh, so in the 1950s, you know, there's, yeah, there's a lot of things that you're looking at and, and it's not reflecting the reality of what's going on, but that's because Hollywood is a dream machine in a way, right? It's, it's making right. all these dreams, all these fantasies. Mm. And uh, so I, I kind of love that. And I, I do like old movies, but I also kind of like looking at how um, they don't reflect reality or they misinterpret uh, reality in many ways. Um, and, and all the things you can't do on screen, right? mm. all the things that are sublimated, sex, how it's expressed, uh, you know, uh, Betty Davis, there's a famous scene in Now Voyager where she lights a cigarette and the guy lights a cigarette and that's kind of like, um, that's visually supposed to evoke sex, you know? Like right. how they have sex. Uh, but that's how, you have, that's how you're doing it on screen with two cigarettes. Um, and just that kind of thing, all those visual cues and things that are being put on there. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's fantasy, it's artifice, and it's also what's underneath that fantasy. Mm, mm, that's really great insight and it's as you say it's so applicable to to this novel as well just that characterization of um of what you see and as you said what what Viridiana sees in the movie that she refers to is not um necessarily what what she's paying attention to and what's kind of reflective of her own life Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. Um, you, you know, you, that was a really great, um, uh, the way you talked about movies as well and about all of these things under the surface. And um, I wanted to talk to you as well a little bit just about in general diversity and different voices in publishing um, for a couple of reasons. One, that's what we do here at Intralingo is we really try to introduce people um, to genres, authors, countries, cultures, um, perspectives, voices that they haven't necessarily heard about that aren't always mainstream, but that allow us to kind of open ourselves up to the broader view of the world. And this is something that you've been talking about um, lately on Twitter. Um, of course, there's a whole publishing sort of controversy going on now, and I don't really want to talk about that book in particular, but, but I think you have a lot to say about diversity and publishing and, and what goes on, you know, sort of behind the scenes in terms of getting published. And, and I would just love for you to share a little bit about your perspective there for readers who, who really don't realize how difficult it can be or, or what some of the challenges are to being heard. Yeah, I think the Lee and Lowe survey just came out and I think it came out today. And it's a survey where basically um, people look at all of the major publishers and some a- and agencies now, I think, and they do a survey asking um, how they identify in different ways um, and at different levels. So, for example, in editorial, I think it's like 87% white, if I'm not mistaken, was what I saw today. And, I'm, and I might have to look at it, but it's but it's almost all white. It's a very small percentage of um, other identities, including um, black and including um, indigenous and others, you know, Latinos. Mm-hmm. And so you might think like, oh, well, that doesn't matter. Like how does that affect um, publishing, right? Does it really matter who is the acquisitions editor? Good books are good books, right? Uh, well, that is not necessarily true. It does affect 
the acquisition pipeline. And for example, I remember with this book with, um, with Unpinkshore, which is right here, um, we shopped it around, I think it was to like 30 something publishers, 30 something editors, yeah. And, and, and remember that I had already had four books. Yeah, I've got a bunch of books under my pipeline which have received uh, some really good reviews and accolades and all that kind of stuff. And so we went out with this and, and I thought, well, it's a different genre, but it won't be like super hard. It'll be, you know, just like any other, sending out any other book. And it was super hard to sell it. Um, mm. uh, we were told that it was a good book, but it was set in Mexico. And therefore, um, it, it was not publishable. Uh, uh, a crime novel should be set in the United States or in the UK. Other things that I had been told in previous releases, and I mean, we managed to sell it, but it was a very small independent publisher with a specific mission about diversity, all this books through its Agora imprint. So we managed to sell it. And it just, it just got two stars, one star in Library Journal and yes. uh, one star in another um, journal that also reviews books. And so um, if you know about the industry, stars are kind of like the highest achievement that you can get for a book. In library journal, it signals to librarians that um, that a book should be bought for a collection, that it's really, you know, good. So this book just got two stars and two different mm -hmm. kinds of journals. So obviously, um, at least librarians in these two different journals agree that it's, you know, it, it should be read. But still people were really reluctant to, you know, buy it or publish it or things like that. But other things that I have been told previously with some of my other books were like, a, you should change the names of the characters to be more Anglo sounding names. And we're mm -hmm. talking about Mexican characters. Um, so, you know, maybe Bob, <laughs> Shirley, <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Um, and uh, I was told uh, also that, um, uh, that I was not a breakout um, author. I, w I just did not have the qualities of a breakout author. And I always kind of, and I wondered, well, what does that, mean because we cannot predict what is going to be a huge hit or not and you're mm -hmm. saying that inimically like there's something in me in my genetic code that's preventing me from being a breakout author um and and lots of other little things so there's all these barriers that i think are invisible um to most people and so most people might think oh well what's stopping you from like pursuing this or that but it's like you face all these things where people tell you uh, well, books set in Mexico are not sellable, or you're not sellable, mm. um, or we cannot have brown people on the cover because nobody would buy the book if they saw um, a brown a brown person. So we gotta have something else in it. We gotta add more Anglos to the book, or it'll, or you know, or sometimes they tell you it's not relatable, which I've had also quite a bit. It's just I can't relate to that, and I always go back and think, well, I read Hannibal with Hannibal Lecter, and and, <laughs> and I can't relate to him because he's a cannibal, but it was a huge success. And I think, you know, The Silence of the Lambs is a really kind of like interesting book, you know, and it was a bestseller and it has some things that I'm like, okay, well, I didn't, you know, like, I'm like, not my favorite book of all time, but it was a huge hit and people read it and liked it. And yet, you know, I don't think most of us can relate to committing crimes and, you know, killing people and all that kind of stuff. Sure. You know, and so there's all these, yeah, there's all these things that kind of, um, that make it really difficult, um, I think, to succeed. And from the outside, you can think, well, it's pretty easy. We all have like the same um, 
chance, right? We, we you know, mm. like we're all running on different lanes, but we all have the same chance. But that's that's not necessarily true. You're running, and suddenly you find that there's this big block, this big, um, uh, yeah, gigantic boulder in the middle, and you're saying there's a boulder in the middle, and people are telling you, oh no, you're imagining, and it's not like it's very, very real. And I mean, I've managed to. Um, kind of have now a career that has spanned several books and I'm and I'm still here so you might say well you've been successful so yeah that means that everybody can be like you and be successful like you but that's not necessarily true um, and it should also not be a chore like like maybe I had maybe I was able to evade that boulder because I had other things that were able to to push me around, you know, I'm, I'm able-bodied, you know, and, and I have a full-time job that allows me to write, and I have certain kinds of supports in my family that have allowed me to have this career. But maybe other people don't have quite that, but they're still very good and talented, and then when they encounter the boulder, they're just gonna, they're gonna have to give, they're gonna have to give up. Um, right. and especially when you're talking about, I think, about intersectionality, when you're facing more than one issue, you know, if you are, a woman of color but you are also a single mother or you're also disabled when you add those two up it's going to be really hard to go around that boulder um and so then it really becomes like we should move the boulder mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. away so that more people um can uh can tell their stories um so we can hear a range of stories and i think also the other problem is that we're sometimes pigeonholed like we think uh for example, in, in terms of Latin America, well, everybody always says that I write magic realism, or they expect me to only write magic mm -hmm. realism. Now, that's very problematic if you have a writer of color who wants to write romance, for example. They want to write contemporary romances or historical romances, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's a big market. Uh, it's very appealing to women. So maybe you're a woman who wants to write historical romances and you want to have um, Black Caribbean women. And then maybe the industry tells you, no, that's you know like you can't um, mm -hmm. so then what do you do you they tell you you should be a magic realist but you're like i really want to be like you know like a big you know a romance writer mm -hmm. they tell you, no, no no you need to do magic realism or you need to do the plight of the immigrant and not everybody wants to do those stories um so if you want to do thriller uh, or maybe if you want to do kids picture books or all that kind of stuff suddenly you face this thing where you're being told, no, 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 you can only work in this tiny corner of the industry, maybe. Um, and so that's, that's very difficult because other people can work in a wide variety of industries and now you're being told you can only have uh, this little slice of cake. So that I think is why um, people of color uh, feel sometimes very upset and mm -hmm. very stressed out and why it's important to try to remove barriers uh, so that more people can participate, uh, but also that more people in editorial can can join in because a lot of the problem that is happening, I think, is in, in acquisitions um, and at the and at that higher level in, in agencies that there's not enough people who can um, understand you and support you. You know, it's very important to have good support systems. And yeah. I mean, my agent is not Latin American; he's a white guy, but he's very supportive. Um, but I think when you can find more people that understand you, that care about you, that care to learn about you, that's, that's really crucial. And, and it's really important to also have, you know, agents who are black and agents who are disabled, agents who are lesbians, who can bring this fresh perspective and who can maybe have different ideas about like, you know what, 
like maybe we should market it like this, you know, because they know the community better. Maybe they, you know, they really know like the black lesbian community would really respond to this kind of marketing tactic because they're there, you know, um, or maybe they can think about um, stories that other people wouldn't see the potential in. They can see, well, you know, that really has a big potential, right? Um, and we saw that, we've been seeing that in film uh, in, a, in a few little ways lately when we saw the success of things, um, uh, of movies uh, like Black Panther, right. uh, which, you know, kind of show that, that world, or Crazy Rich Asians, the adaptation, that there is kind of like markets that we haven't thought about so much and we haven't served so well, but they're there. And, and just making sure that we have enough creatives uh, that can respond to that vision is is also important but yeah I, I think people think it's you know we all have an equal share and it's all the same conditions but they, they really are not and it's just starting to change right now um, so the danger is to think oh oh the work is all done we we fixed it um we have a couple of really well-selling um black authors we have a couple of uh well-known editors it's done it's it's mm -hmm. it's fixed and and you can't think that too, because also people are mobile, right? So, you know, people, you know, change, do different things. So you can't just be like, oh, we're done. It needs to be something that keeps keeps going on so that new generations um, join in and write and work in editorial. But yeah, it's, it, it's a very difficult, publishing is very difficult already. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a lot more difficult if you are a member of a marginalized community. That was very long, but <laughs> no, it, it's great. It, you know, I think, it, like you say, it's it's super important. And I think what we often um, think is that because something has come to notice, that then it is being dealt with. And yes, it is, like you say, but it's really only the very start of it. And um, uh, one question that often comes to my mind, like as a promoter of lit, that's my purpose is to share a huge and diverse range of, of, as I said, writing and authors and perspectives. But I often ask myself as a reader, someone who doesn't have any influence over anything except what I choose to purchase and the authors I choose to support after they are published, what can readers do, do you think, if anything, to sort of change that gatekeeping mechanism or to change that, um, though, to remove those boulders so that they can then have access to, to a wider variety of authors? I think readers are very important, um, although sometimes it feels like it's a huge machinery and there's no space for readers. They are ultimately mm. a consumer, right? And one important thing that readers can do is request books uh, that they think might diversify the collection in their library. Um, and yeah. so if it's not in the collection, nobody can read it. And I think sometimes we assume, well, somebody else is going to order, you know, surely they're going to order whatever, whatever mm -hmm. book, and then it's not ordered. Uh, so if you have a chance to put a, um, a request in the library and that you think will diversify the collection. I think that's really good. And librarians are also uh, not only, I think, open to requests, but open to conversations. Um, it may be that if, if you see something that's missing in your library, if the displays you think could be uh, enriched or there might be some other programming that's not happening, I think it's worth talking to, to, your, to a librarian and, and having a discussion with them. They are really uh, building uh, 
kind of this warehouse of knowledge and of stories for the community. Mm-hmm. And, and so it should be rich and reflective of that community. And if you think that's not the case, you have, I think, very much the right to, to you know, to have a talk, talk about that. Um, sometimes one of the problems that happens is that we do have certain days or certain months that identify uh, diverse populations and so we might have a display for Black History Month but that might be the only month of the year when we display um, books by, by that group and so that's not very helpful for example if you're looking for romances and all the romances that are always res- displayed are you know kind of like white romances and you're kind of putting the other one to the side so those you know that's also important to integrate um, mm. Uh, the displays and and display books in a variety of contexts and ways because those holidays are certainly it's nice to go in you know for right now that we had Lunar Lunar New Year and I went into my library and they had a big display kind of like with Chinese um, books that were recommended but if that's the only day of like the only weekend of the year when the Chinese authors get kind of put in the front and you get to look at them and then that's kind of problematic because they're missing other avenues for people to make contact with these texts. And I also think um, that, uh, well, book lovers sometimes participate in things like book clubs. And so when you're making suggestions uh, for the next reading, um, you can suggest books that you think that would be different or would um, increase diversity. Um, if you have any knowledge that I sometimes that I think that might help understand the context of a book that might also be good in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, um, I saw this uh, book club that they were reading um, The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende uh, and, they, and they're all uh, kind of really heavy fantasy readers, but kind of traditional like Tolkien fantasy readers and they all kind of hated it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's okay to hate a book, but one mm-hmm. of the things that they were missing was the Latin American context of that specific book, how it fits uh, with Latin American literature and how it works within that literature. So um, someone who understands that, I was able to say, look, the thing that you're not understanding here is that, you know, this is functioning very much. You can read 100 Years of Solitude and read uh, La Casa de los Espíritus and see that one is coming from a male point of view, this other one is kind kinding from the point of view of a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both tra- trying to tell these really large histories uh, it, it's kind of taking a bird's view of the story. And so that's why um, you're not zooming in and going in with a single character and uh, another aspect of that. So if you have some knowledge that you can bring into conversations like that, mm-hmm. that's also useful. Um, you know, even, you know, if you're white or whatever, you don't belong to the ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you may have read something about it. You may have something valuable to comment uh, to help with the discussion. Uh, and, you know, just comments on Goodreads. Uh, algorithms are important. Um, even if you don't shop with Amazon, Amazon is um, has this kind of algorithmic power. So uh, reviewing there, even if you didn't shop there, or upvoting a review that maybe you think says things very well. Maybe you don't want to write a review, right? But maybe you see these reviews go by in Goodreads or Amazon that you're like, that really captures this book. You know, an upvote helps uh, mm-hmm. with the algorithm. Because like I say, it's a lot of it is findability. Um, so, you know, people kind of sometimes use Amazon as a gigantic Google search engine rather than using Google and, and they still shop in, in their indie bookstore or their, or their local chain. So I think that's also another good tip. And just talking about books, if you're with people, um, if you're a book lover, you're probably 
you probably know other other book lovers, whether in you know in your day to day interactions or or virtually online, and just telling them uh, why they why they might love this book, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So if they're saying, "Oh, I, I I've been reading um, uh, some. I read this romance, and it was like in the uh, 1900s, and there were the frilly dresses, and I really loved it. It had a lot of adventure." Then you can say, "Oh, okay. You know what? Curtin Milan has these wonderful series of books with frilly dresses, with you know all this stuff, with the adventure, and they're very well written. And you know, in Curtin Milan." You don't have to say it, but you know, Courtney Milan happens to be, you know, um, a minority writer. Um, mm -hmm. You don't have to even put that in there, but you're just sharing how wonderful these things are and just remembering uh, to do it. It's very easy, I think, um, sometimes to think that you have no, no power at all, mm -hmm. but we all make recommendations. We all talk about stuff. Um, and we all love certain books. And when you go out there and you tell somebody, I love this book and this is why I love it. Sometimes you can move people to, you know, to explore it. And it doesn't mean that everybody is going to necessarily be like, oh my God, you know, diversity is the most important thing. And I'm just, you know, I'm so into it. But if they discover a new author, a new perspective that they didn't know about, if they find that Courtney Milan writes these books and they're really fun romances, Oh my God, I mean, that's great news for her, but it's also great news for them because they have more things, more things to look at, right? Um, and that's really the fun, that's really the, the fun thing about diversity is that sometimes there's things that I never thought existed and suddenly I was, you know, going down this kind of out, literally alleyway and I bumped into it and I was like, oh my God, that is like a thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about it. And it's just, <laughs> it's just so fun because the things there's the easy things, the things that you go into a store and they are displayed huge and somebody spent millions of dollars, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world, the George R. Mm -hmm. Martins of the world, which is great, but they're very easy to find. You, you just, you know, go into a store, you'll bump into it. It's these other things, they're the hidden gems of the world that are really kind of exciting to find. And often that's where the diversity is. Um, but I think it's like the thrill of the hunt. You're going to really enjoy going down these literary alleyways and discovering all kinds of things. And like I said, sometimes you won't like all of it, um, which is fine. But, uh, you know, just with restaurants, there's more than just like Big Macs. <laughs> and I love, uh, and I admit, you know what? I eat a cheeseburger at McDonald's every single week. I do. I do. But, you know, but you, but I also like looking for the tiny greasy spoons and the other things uh, in, in this city, especially because in Vancouver, you never know kind of what you're going to find. So it's the yeah. same with literature. Like I'm not putting down McDonald's. I really love eating those hamburgers. I love Stephen King and, and, and I bought all of George R. Martin's books. Uh, I think they're wonderful gentlemen, but you know, uh, if you just stick to that, you're going to miss out on so many wonderful things. Yeah, that is such a fantastic point, you know, and I, and I love that you just reminded us that as, as readers, one, we, we do have a lot of power to um, change, you know, what is read and what is out there and what is available simply by talking to our librarians, by talking to our bookstores. Um, and also that, you know, it, it's not necessarily exactly, as you said, a chore or something that we have to force ourselves to do, but it, there is this pleasure of discovery of trying something new and as you say maybe you're going to like it and maybe you're not um, that's okay 
we don't always like every food we try or every country we travel to and that's that's perfectly good but um but it enriches our lives simply to to attempt and to try and to uh and to break away from those algorithms of if you like this then you will like something exactly <laughs> like it <laughs> yeah. yeah oh i love that well, I, I so appreciate the diversity of your work, Sylvia. I really loved Untamed Shore. It was such an artful novel. Um, the, it really had that cinematic feel, the suspense, the character development. Um, it's a fantastic book. I know it's, as you say, it's um, getting good press already before its release, and I'm so happy for you about that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I absolutely look forward to reading your backlist and uh, hopefully um, in the future we can have you on again to talk about, about your future books. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me and uh, I urge everybody to um, go look for something unexpected. <laughs> Even ask your librarian, like, you know, yeah. this is what I like to read. Can you take me to something unexpected, but that still maybe has this one trait that I like, you know, and, yeah. and tell them, and that is maybe, you know, that falls into this category of diverse reading, you know, and I think you might be surprised by what, what, what you find, and it might be really fun. I've done it myself. It's not like I, you know, like I know everything about literature. I was not mm -hmm. familiar at all with like African-American literature, um, especially of a certain time period, like the jazz age uh, renaissance. Mm -hmm. And I found a lot of books that were very interesting and that I had, you know, never thought, oh, I was like, they had a big literature boom. Of course they did. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> exactly. Everything was happening, you know, music and art and everything. Um, and yeah, so, you know, just go there and, and see what you find. Uh, you might be surprised and thrilled by it. And, and that's, I think, the, the thrill of the book hunter is just finding those gems mm -hmm. and, and then sharing them. I think we... Book readers love to share books. <laughs> that's exactly mm -hmm. that's what they live for. Yeah, 100%. I think that is so true. And, and I couldn't agree more that, uh, yeah, it's just head out there and find something and ask somebody. You don't need to be, um, you know, know all about every type of literature, exactly as you said, but somebody does and, and ask them for a recommendation. Yes, and, and love your librarians. They're wonderful people. <laughs> they are. They absolutely are. Well, Sylvia, we will make sure to absolutely include your full bio, the link to your website, to your Twitter profile as well in the show notes. I do encourage everyone to reach out and get a copy of Untamed Shore or ask your librarian for it. Um, take a look at Sylvia's past books and, and obviously keep an eye out as well for Mexican Gothic, which is coming out in June. And uh, thank you everyone for, for watching, to Sylvia for being here, um, and also to, to Agora, to Police for, for the advanced review copy of this wonderful book. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, if you enjoyed this spotlight show, we sincerely hope that you will subscribe, like it, share it as well, because the whole point is to get different books out to readers all around the world. Um, and we hope that you will tune in next time.